0: And also, too, the last thing I would say is that if you're here and you go to this church and maybe you just got things going on in your life and you're trying to figure out stuff, maybe hardships that are going on in your life or things that are taking place, you lost your job, whatever, you need need people around you to help you. Um, That's kind of what praying is. It's God wants to hear from us and God wants us to call upon his name. And what better way than to to do that with a bunch of the saints and pray together and seek God together. So wherever you're at in that, um, we invite you guys to come out. If you can't come to it, there's no, like... We're not trying to, like, put any guilt trip on anybody. Uh, we understand people can sometimes be busy, whatever. My point is that, you know, please pray about being a part of it. That's it. Uh, last thing I would have is to say is this. Um, as we do move into the fall, I um, mentioned this past couple of weeks, everything does kind of change around here. On Sunday mornings, things get um, a lot more people kind of start showing up with Cal Poly coming into uh, full session and whatnot. Uh, My wife and I kind of came up with this metaphor a few weeks ago, I shared this this with you guys a few weeks ago, and and I think it kind of fits well, it's almost like San Luis, or at least our church, is during the summertime, it's kind of like this is our church, this is our core, you know, the people who kind of hang out here, call this their church, but then come September, late September, early October, um, Cal Poly comes in, and it's almost like we get this massive extended family that ends up just kind of coming in, crashing in, kind of living with us for nine months, it's like the cousins come, right, it's like, Hundreds of cousins come, they just drop in, and, uh, you know, everything works, you know, we re- 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 rearrange the furniture, make room for them, um, and it's a lot of fun, but at the same time, you know, as we grow, and as a lot, new, lot more new people kind of start showing up, that means that there's a lot more needs that start showing up, and sometimes it's possible for other people that go to this church that are here throughout the summer or whatever, they might feel as if their needs aren't really being met. And I feel like, to be honest with you, sometimes what ends up happening is people kind of look to the leadership and like, okay, pastors, what are you guys going to do for us now? And we're hurting, what are you going to do for us? And the reality is, we'll do the best we can, but we can't meet everybody else's needs. So you're like, how do you do this then? The way that we do this is the body of Christ operates like the body of Christ. So what I would suggest is this. The best way for us to really help each other and serve each other, love one another, to make sure that everybody within this body is being met and taken care of and their needs are really being, because we value their needs, but that at the same time, I can't reach everybody's needs I mean, I'm, I'm limited you know I got my own handful of people that are you know I'm in contact with and talking to and Pastor James and Pastor Ben and Pastor Nick all these guys we've all got people that we're connecting with we can't reach out to everybody's needs in here but the way that the body functions is I think if we look at ourselves and say what what can I do how can I serve one another how can I love other people how can I actually take ownership of this body and see about reaching out to other people. So think about that. Be praying about those ways in, in which you can be a part of the body, the community of Calvary Slow. Serve one another. Especially as the family grows. Especially as the cousins come and live with us for nine months. And as everything gets really busy. Don't just look at it and say, okay, great. We've got nine months of just chaos again. Look at it and say, how, how can I help serve? How can I bring some order out of chaos and love into maybe where there might not be a lot of love Or places where darkness need to have the darkness pushed back and light pushed in, where we can really just shine brightly as the body of Christ is served one another. So think about that. Uh, Really, all I'm saying is pray about that. Pray about how God would want to use you to be a blessing into this body. All right, that's it. So how about now? Why don't we open our Bibles to the Book of Matthew? Matthew chapter six is basically where we're at. Uh, We're kind of at the tail end of the chapter. Um, If you're new here, we want to welcome you. What we've been doing right now over the summer is we've been taking the Sermon on the Mount, which basically occupies Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And it's a series of messages that Jesus gives. Uh, It's actually one big message, but it's a series of topics that Jesus covers in this one big message, or one sermon on the Mount. Um, And Jesus covers a lot of stuff. He talks about divorce, talks about happiness, talks about what it's like to be forgiving. Um, Today we're going to be taking a look at the whole subject matter of anxieties. Some of you guys are stressed out, right? Anybody stressed? Anybody has life, just like life is like pressing on you? You're stressed, right? Some of you, I can just see the stress, right? Your word on your face. Uh, Others of you are like, I ain't stressed. and Everybody else around you, are like, yeah, he's stressed. He's really stressed, all right? Stress is something we all face. And uh, it's something that's really real. It's something that obviously our culture is affected by. It's something that obviously Jesus' culture was affected by, otherwise he wouldn't have addressed it. And it's something that's very real, but what I want to say this morning as we begin to look at this, is really uh, anxiety or stress is not the issue, all right? It's a symptom. It's a symptom. And so Jesus is not really going to just spend a lot of time dealing with anxiety. He's going to actually try to cut to the chase and get to the real issue, the real heart of the matter. And that's what we're going to really try to look at here this morning as we try to understand this passage. And uh, so we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount. Today we're kind of at this particular passage in Matthew chapter 6 at around verse 25 as we're going to pick it up. But what I'm going to do this morning as we kind of begin to look at this, I want to basically just kind of lay a little bit of a a groundwork for this. And then I'm going to pray and then we're going to read the passage that we're going to look at. And then I'm going to go into an entirely, like completely, you're going to actually think I'm not even teaching the passage anymore because I'm going to go on such a tangent and then hopefully by God's grace I'm going to try to bring it back. All right, that's where we're going to go. So, so you, you just got to follow with me a little bit. You know, if you think I lost my mind, you're probably right. But at the same time, I'm going to try to bring it back into the text. So that's where we're going to head. Um, but before I jump in, what I want to say is this, is that when you look at the Sermon on the Mount, one of the things that's very obvious is that there's one thing that's on Jesus' mind, I think more than anything else, is that Jesus is really trying hard uh, to communicate ways to bring us into joy. All right. I'm gonna say it again. Jesus is really trying to bring us into joy because he recognizes that it's something that a lot of us don't have. And what I mean by that is joy that's found in God. So with Jesus, when he's talking about joy, Jesus is not talking about something that's like you know you find it internally, you know where you just kind of buckle down and get sort of you just sort of embrace issues in your life. That's not the type of joy that's talking about. Um, the joy that Jesus is talking about is external, but it's not external in the ways that we oftentimes think of joy as being external. In other words, Jesus is not talking about joy that's, that's down here, meaning how much we have, how much we can buy, how much we eat, how much we have in this life. That's not the type of joy he's talking about. It's an external joy, but the joy that he's talking about that's external is a joy that comes from the Father. So in Jesus' mind, the joy that he's trying to get us in connection with is joy that comes from fellowship or relationship with his Father. That's the joy that Jesus is trying to bridge, this gap between the Father, who is eternally joyful, with us, who is eternally looking for joy, but seldomly finding it. You guys following this so far? Okay, so the reality is, we're always looking for joy, seldomly finding it. God is always joyful and he's always wanting to deliver joy, to bring joy. And here's Jesus as the mediator saying, I'll help you get there. That's where we're going today. That's what we're looking at. And he's, he's going to basically, what he's going to try to help us to get there is, is to help us not only to see the pathway there, but he's also going to help us to see some of the roadblocks that keep us from having it. So what he's going to do, he's going to talk about things like anxiety. He's gonna talk about some of the things that keep us from getting in connection with, with connection with joy. Have you ever noticed, like when you look at Jesus, he's never freaked out? I mean, like he's never stressed out. I mean, never in the New Testament do you ever read Peter, James, and John, you're just like, dang, the Lord's really stressed today. Never. It's like Jesus is always cool. Always. He's always keeping calm. I mean, even like when there's storms. Right? All the apostles, they're freaking out. Jesus is like taking a nap. And that's just the way Jesus kind of always moved. The, The dude was always at rest. Always at rest. He was at rest in himself. At rest in the Father. So what Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to get his creation, you and I, human beings, in connection with the Father who's always at rest. By helping us to see a lot of those are roadblocks that keep us from there. So that's where we're going to go. I'm going to pray right now. And then uh, we'll take a look at the passage. And then we'll get to work on this larger issue. Alright? Let's pray. Father, we just thank you right now that you uh, really are a God that's joyful. You are full of joy. Because you're full of love. And you're always in fellowship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And in your presence is fullness of joy. And God, we confess that uh, we always are pursuing joy, but seldomly ever finding it. And if we do find it, it's very short lived. We end up looking for more because it never really satisfies. So, God, I ask you right now that you would help us to see what Jesus is talking about, that you would help us to understand where he's wanting to lead us. So, we commit ourselves in your hands right now, pray for your strength, open our eyes to help us to see you, God, as being a treasure. That satisfies eternally. We ask these things in Jesus' name. We pray, Amen. Okay, Matthew chapter six. We're gonna pick it up at around verse. Actually, we're gonna look at verse twenty-four. We're gonna go back one verse, and uh, but first, we're gonna start with verse twenty-five, and then we'll go backwards. He says this verse twenty-five. Therefore, stop. Okay, whenever you re- read the word "therefore," you always know it's kind of this word that sort of uh, joins another concept or idea. And so just before Jesus said in verse 25, therefore, he finishes with this concept in verse 24 where he says this, no one can serve two masters. You will either hate one, love the other, or you will be devoted to one and you will despise the other. Then he finishes with this really powerful statement. He says, no man can serve two masters. You will either, then he says, no man can serve God and money. No one can serve God and money. The word money, some of your translations actually might just sort of give the actual translation. It's mammon. Uh, The actual word mammon is an amazing word. A lot of scholars debate like what exactly does it mean. But if, if you, most scholars would agree that you take most Greek words or even Hebrew words or Aramaic words and you look at the root words of those words and it helps you to get a better idea as to what those words actually mean. The word mammon actually contains a root word that we use in every single one of our prayers. Take a guess what it is. Mammon. Amen. 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 You got it? It's the word amen. Um, amen literally means so be it. It means so be it. Uh, so the word mammon is sort of a play on this particular word. Uh, where in the idea or the day, the word mammon was all sort of deified as a god. And so what Jesus is saying is that either God is the one who causes all things to be, so be it. He is the amen. Or money is that which causes all things to be. It's either God who causes all things to be, or money that causes all things to be. And I think if you're honest with yourself, you'd recognize in our world, that's our dilemma, isn't it? We're constantly in this battle. Constantly in this tension between, will God cause all things to be, or will money cause all things to be? And so here's what he's saying. You cannot serve God who causes all things to be, and money, who causes all things to be. They're in conflict with one another. You can't do it. Therefore, he moves on in verse 25, he says this, I tell you, don't be anxious. So there is some connection between this confusion we live in between God, who causes all things to be, and money, that causes all things to be. Or at least, we're led to believe that. Following? following? You believe me? Anyways, idea. he's saying that that if you live somewhere in this tension, you will find there is the potential, the very real potential, great anxieties that plague our soul. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you'll eat, what you'll drink, or your body, what you'll put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap. They neither gather into barns that your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his lifespan? We'll get to this in a second here because there's a lot of different translations that your Bibles might say. Verse 28. And why are you anxious about your clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. See how they grow? They neither toil nor spin. Did I tell you even Solomon in all of his glory was not even arrayed or clothed like one of these. But if God who so clothes the field, grass of the field, which is today alive, tomorrow is thrown into a bonfire, how much more will he clothe you, Oh, you of little faith? Therefore, don't be anxious, saying what will we eat, what will we drink, what will we wear for the Gentiles or the pagans? Seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows those things that you have need of, but rather seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about do not be anxious about your life or about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So here's what Jesus is basically doing, as I mentioned in sort of summary. What he's trying to do is he's trying to get his disciples, people who are listening to him, connected with joy. And the way he's going to do that is, in the end, I'll just kind of cut to the chase real quick, is he basically summarizes by saying, seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first God's kingdom. It's not going to just give out promises that never fulfill, or it's not going to just be these empty promises that can't deliver, that God's kingdom actually does deliver. It does fulfill, because as you seek God, your Father, He will give you all these things. He will help you. He will strengthen you. He will give you life. That's the point that I think Jesus is driving at, that joy in life is not just some sort of arbitrary, subjective feeling that we can sort of sit around and kind of compare notes on, but life and joy are actually bound up in in the Father, that Jesus is this mediator who's leading us to his Father. That's where he's going with this. But Jesus recognizes that there is this constant battle to always keep us from these things, what happens is we find ourselves always confronted with what I'm just going to call imposter joys. There are these things that promise joy, but they cannot deliver. They offer hope and satisfaction, but they can't fulfill. They're imposter joys, right? Now think about it. Our lives, our culture is, is filled with all sorts of imposter joys, All right, You walk into the grocery store And the last, like, 10 feet before you buy your groceries is is this line of magazines, right? To me, those magazines almost kind of typify somebody's description of what heaven is like, all right? They're almost like Bibles. And what I mean by it, if you buy one, if you pick one up, that Bible will lead you to heaven. right, here's what I mean, all right? It will lead you to everlasting joy, all right? Here's what I talk about. You take a look at one, one magazine, and it's got like six ways to please your man. All right? Well, why is it important? Because if you please your man, then you're probably going to be happy too. All right? You know, 10 ways to get your business off and running. All right? Why is that important? Because if you got a good business, then you get money. You get money, you buy more stuff. All right? Here's another one. You can see examples of like, you know, room additions for cheap. You know, why is that important? Because a oh, bigger house makes you feel a little bit more important. little bit better about yourself, your identity sort of bound up in that, what you possess, the bigger car that you have, you know, what type of car stereo you have in your car, what type of rims you have on your car, all of these things are almost, if you would, empty promises to joy. They never really fulfill. I'll give you an example why I know they never fulfill. Because you can buy the most expensive computer or the best computer, which we all know it's Mac, but you can buy a brand new Mac. And what happens is, within a few months, it's going to break. Or actually, they don't break. PCs break, but in a few months, a new Mac will come out, and you'll need to get a new Mac because you think it's it's better. It's te- it will it's it'll make me happier. Why? Because it's got faster CPU or it's got you know what I'm saying. And we think we think these ways because there's sort of these empty promises that we buy into, hoping that something will will actually make us happier. Or satisfy it or make us feel a little bit better about ourselves. The Bible's word for this is idolatry. Alright, so I'm just gonna just cut to the chase, get to the bottom of it, and say, This is really what Jesus is saying, you gotta be careful of is idolatry. We have sort of this nature by default where every culture, every society, every individual, every family has its own little idols. The Bible's The Bible talks about idols from the very beginning. The Ten Commandments start with a, uh, uh, basically a command to avoid idolatry and to worship the living God. So the only solution to idolatry is to worship the living God. So this is why I say what Jesus is basically suggesting here is that our anxieties are interlinked to where our heart's at. Meaning we love certain things. We put hope and value in certain things. And as we put hope and value in these certain things, if they let us down, then we get full of anxiety. If we get full of anxiety, we just feel like we can't live anymore. But Jesus is really saying at the heart of it, I love you guys. And I don't want you putting trust in something that's going to break. Because I love you. Nick said last week, basically at the end of his study. says, really, Jesus has our best intentions in mind. And when he talks about don't invest and soak for yourselves treasures on earth, that really the whole main reason behind that injunction is because he loves us. I mean, think about this. He's basically a God who's outside. He sees how we typically do our investments. And he's like, look, if if you invest your time, energy, and money into that thing, in just a short period of time, moths are going to eat it. Rust is going to devour it, and it's going to leave you feeling really empty. Leave you feeling really bad. So here's what Jesus' suggestion is, is listen, don't serve for yourselves treasures on earth. Serve for yourselves treasures in heaven. That will bring you lasting joy. That will cause you to feel as if in the Father you have importance. So here's where Jesus is basically trying to go with this. Let me say this. If, if you look at the Sermon on the Mount as a bunch of imperatives from Jesus who happens to be very angry and all he's trying to do is throw a bunch of more rules upon you because he's really angry and he's just trying to throw out a bunch of commands and if you view the Sermon on the Mount as just a bunch of imperatives, then then you will get this picture that really God is this angry guy that he's really frustrated with a bunch of people because you all let him down and unless you do exactly what he says, then he's just going to throw you in hell and burn you for an eternity. And unfortunately, that's the way sometimes people communicate it. I think personally, that's a very false view of God. Here's where I think the perspective comes from. I think Jesus is a very loving representative of the Father. And he's like, listen, because I love you, you're investing your time, energy, and talents in stuff that will destroy you. It'll let you down. It'll destroy your family. It'll ruin your life. It might even ruin the lives of those whom you love. And because I love you, I'm urging you. Take your hands off that. Let go of it. The Father will satisfy you. If you soak treasures in this earth, they'll let you down. But if you soak treasures in heaven, you won't be let down. It's kind of Jesus continues that same train of thought in this particular passage here, where he's like, listen, if you if you have anxiety, that will destroy you. It'll ruin you. It'll make your life miserable because you're never gonna be happy. It'll make your spouse's wife miserable because she can't ever get you out of your funk. And you're going to just make everybody else miserable. You will not really live. So Jesus is like, listen, I really have your best interest in mind. And Jesus loves us. And so he's trying to get our hands taken off of these idols that we hold on to. So that's where he's really trying to go into. As I already mentioned, idolatry is the main issue that's at heart here. Every culture, every person, every individual has its own separate type of idols. Men, they've got their own unique set of idols. Women, they got their own unique set of idols. Call it clothing. For men, call it tools, grunts, whatever. Uh, for different people groups, you've got your own set of idols. For different age groups, subcultures, people have got certain types of music. If you're very artistic, you got your own set of art, idols. Your idols are basically the, you know, your ability to self-express. If you're really into art, art type stuff, and you are very artistic, sometimes at the end of the day, the idol that is in the artist type of a world is self-expression. If you're a politician, it's power. All right. If you're someone that just loves education, it's, it's intellect. You worship the mind. What I'm trying to say is that unless a culture, or a person, or a family is governed by the goodness and the glory of God... We will by default be governed by idols. It's the way it is. It's the way we operate. That's the default function. And ancient cultures actually uh, typified this even more appropriately than our, cultures, our culture does today. I'll give you an example. Ancient cultures, we look at them, we're like, ah, oh, they're all primitive. They worship little statues. They worship little gods, right? Like Diana and Artemis and Zeus. And we're like, you know, they're all primitive. But to be really honest with you, I actually think they're way more honest than our culture is. I mean, yeah, they worship a little idol, but here's the problem with our culture. we like, all right, we don't worship anything. We never get on our hands and knees and worship or kiss a dollar. Yeah, you maybe don't, but the reality is the only reason why a body does something is because it's already there in the heart. And so what Jesus is basically going to try to do is going to try to help pry our hands, our fingers, off of those things that we deify or wrongly call as idols, Now here's the reality. Sometimes people, you know, maybe you're a Christian, you're like, can Christians still worship idols? Can Christians still give themselves over to idols? Yes! That's why John the Beloved ends one of his letters by saying, my little children, keep yourselves from idols. It's the number one issue we face. It's the number one issue we face in this world. If you're not a Christian, you're held in bondage by idols. You might not know it. You might deny it. If you are a Christian, we are oftentimes fighting this constant, ongoing, perennial warfare against what our hearts value most. An idol, at the end of the day, is really anything that we value as an ultimate, as an ultimate sense. It's what we place ultimate value. It's what we run to when we're going through hard times. It's what we look to when we find ourselves struggling or suffering. It's what we oftentimes, by default, will run to whenever. Whenever we're happy, whenever we're full of sorrow, whenever we're having a hard time, we run to it. It is the default thing that we turn to. One of the best ways to kind of ask ourselves whether or not things in our lives are idols is to just simply ask yourself, how do you respond if it's gone? How do you respond? All right, if it's just a good thing in your life and it's gone, you're sad. You're bummed. You're like, ah, I like that thing. It's a bummer if it was an idol and it's gone you want to die your life is worthless everything that you are your identity was, was, was wrapped up in that very thing that's no longer there for some it's jobs for some people it's relationships it's like I gotta have a relationship relationship with another guy or a girl or something like that and if it's gone if it's not there you just feel like you want to die your life's over it's meaningless you know that Jesus has come to rescue us from those types of idols? That's the point where he's trying to drive at. The book of Ezekiel, chapter 16. I encourage you to write it down read through it a little bit later. Really powerful passage. Uh, Jeremiah, chapter two verses, uh, Jeremiah chapter 2 and 3 also is another important passage. In these two passages, both of these prophets, basically prophesied against the people of Israel. And in the passage in Ezekiel, it's really powerful basically what he's going to communicate to them. Is that God has been really good to them. God picked them up when they were just a very young, weak nation. And the, the metaphor that he paints is that God married you guys. He married you. You're his wife. God's your husband. And the picture that he's going to go on to say is that your husband took really good care of you. He gave you really good food. He gave you beautiful clothing. He, he took really, really good care of you. But he's going to go on to say what, ends up ha- what, what what ended up happening is you took the food and you made that food a good thing. Into an ultimate thing. You made your clothing from a good thing into an ultimate thing. And rather than being satisfied in your husband God. You end up becoming a prostitute. And you prostituted yourself with all the nations. You, you bowed down at their feet. At Egypt and Assyria. And you worshipped them. And he, and he says even like a prostitute. Like God's, God gets very graphic in the Ezekiel passage. He says like most prostitutes. They actually take money for their goods. He says, but you guys, you guys actually paid them. You, 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 unlike regular prostitutes, actually paid them to give you goods. God's like, you took something good and you made it an ultimate thing, thereby creating an idol that you bent down to and you worship. So the reality is that in our hearts, in our lives, idols are all pervasive, I'm going to kind of press this on a little bit further. I'm going to try to take a look at three different types of idols that oftentimes affect us. Uh, Martin Luther wrote in what was called the larger catechism. He wrote that you will never, uh, you never break, if you break the first commandment, basically, in summary, if you break the first commandment, you've broken all of the other commandments. The first commandment, which is to, you shall not have any other God beside me. Don't make any other graven images. But Martin Luther, as he was kind of studying this and looking at this and examining this and understanding this, he began to realize That the reality is is that if we make any other graven image, if we make anything else an idol in our lives, something that's a good thing into an ultimate thing, then we will break the rest of the commandments. We will lie. The reason why we lie is because we lie to cover up how bad we feel. Or we lie to cover up our tracks. Or we will steal because we love this other thing more than we love God. So we will do anything we can to get more of it. We break the rest of the commandments. One of the other reformers actually says, our hearts are like idol factories. They are factories that produce idols. You guys, we can't get away with this. We cannot run from this. In fact, the reality is, is that about 34% of all Americans claim to be born again. Claim to have some sort of relationship with God. But the reality is, is that you look at it even further, if 33%, 34% of all Americans are worshiping the true and living God, then why is it that most of us, why are we not having a greater impact upon the culture? Here's my thought. I think the reason behind this is, is because even though somebody may have had some sense of a born-again experience or some sort of thing that they think or either have actually felt or may have mistaken as some sort of a religious experience, at the end of the day, they still are worshiping idols. They're still holding on to these things. In other words, God becomes to them a means to get what they really want. All right? I'll show you how this plays out. If we look at God and we're like, I'm going to go pray. I'm going to seek God because I really, really, really want a spouse. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask God to give me a spouse. Or you really, really want a child. You're like, I'm going to pray until God gives me a child or God gives me a spouse or God gets me that job. whatever that never happens this is exactly why sometimes people walk away from God shake their fist at God and curse Him and never want to have anything to do with God again it's because in their heart God was not ultimate a spouse was a child was a job was a career because it all fed into that identity and when God said no or God didn't capitulate to your prayer or God withheld something that he thought was a bad thing for you, we turned and we shook our fist at God. See, the reality is, I think a lot of us struggle with this particular area because our idols have never really been dealt with. And Jesus recognizes that idolatry will always breed sort of this characteristic uh, anxiety that sort of bleeds over into every area of our lives. And he's not just going to simply deal with... The symptom, he wants to get to the heart of it, but then ultimately get to the place of how do we reverse it? How do we deal with it? So here's a few different types of idols that I want to basically categorize for you. The first of which I'm going to talk about are religious idols. You're like, religious idols? Can religious people have idols? Yeah. Yes, we can. Here's one example. I'm going to throw out one of the first ways in which religious people have idols is I'm going to call it truth. First idol that I see in religious people is truth. The truth. Are we supposed to know the truth? Is the truth supposed to set us free? Yes. Yes. Let me tell you what I mean by this. One of the things that the evangelical church in America boasts in all the time is how orthodox we are. How much of the Bible we know. How well we stick to the text. I mean, I grew up in a tradition. I got saved in a tradition that, honestly, I'm thankful to God for because it really stuck to the text. But to be really frank, to be really honest with you, I've seen a lot of guys within my system, and I've seen people who have been bred up in my system that tend to look at truth as almost akin to deity. Here's what I mean. I I remember a long time ago when I was a kid, maybe 17, 18 years old, when I was a punk and I loved to argue with people about the Bible. I'm serious. I was that guy. All right? You're like... I met that guy at Farmer's Market. Yeah, that was me. I was that guy. Like the guy yelling at everybody? Yes, that was me. All right? So I, I'm, I, I can identify him. I, I see him. I know him. That was me. Um, when I was a young punk kid who loved to argue with people about the Bible, I remember once I'm using this phrase, I'm like, listen, you know it's fact because it's the cold, hard fact. It's the Bible. All right? for some reason, I don't know why, as I was studying this past week, that phrase came back in my mind. Cold, hard fact. I was thinking about idols and idolatry and how truth can be oftentimes uh, made into even an idol itself. Cold, hard fact. My mind kind of went to this verse where it says, um, idols, they fashion in their own likeness and image and all that. And it says, there's this passage in the Psalms that says, and they, those who form them and fashion them be, end up becoming like them. And I thought, people that deify truth, they're cold, hard Facts become cold, hard, and factual. And they look a lot more like scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites than they do Jesus. At the end of the day, if you look at yourself and you're like, I'm saved because I believe the right things, I say you've made truth an idol. Unless you can say I'm saved because Jesus had grace and Save me, but I think you're in danger of worshiping something else. Does not mean you're not saved? It just mean that you have become confused in who the real gods are. You're like, well, yeah, well, I thought truth is good, yes, but don't mistake truth for being some grouping of arbitrary or conceptual ideas found in the Bible. Truth is a person. It's Jesus. This is why Jesus can say something like this to the scribes and Pharisees. He's like, you guys search the scriptures. You guys search them. And in them you think you have a life. But in reality, you're not getting the life. Because they testify of me. I'm the truth. The truth is not just some sort of written text. It is a human, living, almighty, all-powerful God who has become a man. Jesus is the truth. So what I'm trying to say is this. Is that yes... Even truth, even our perceptions, I should say, of truth can become a deity, a God that we tend to worship. And we end up becoming a lot like that. The next thing I want to see in terms of religious idols is morality. Again, this is another real big one in evangelicalism. The modern day evangelical church has become very good at sniffing out evil. All right? I mean, we're really good at this one. Really good at pointing out all the things we shouldn't do. Right, you can't listen to, you know, like, back for me, is like when I was younger, it's like, dude, Michael Bolton's the bad guy. Don't listen to his music. I mean, I, I wouldn't listen to it anyhow. Um, but, I mean, the reality is that we, the, 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 the Christian world is really good at pointing out error. All right? And really good at trying to have sort of this clean, moralistic perspective in which we live according to. And we have this mentality where we're like, if you do this... If you live according to this particular line, and at the end of the day, typically the moralistic people that end up worshipping their morality are the ones they come to church, they usually show up to every event, they're there at every prayer meeting, they're there at everything that you got going on, they're there, they're taking notes throughout the Bible study, they've got the Bible study, they're Bible lined, and you know they got all the orthodox beliefs and they live according to a very strict regimen. They wake up early in the morning, they spend time in their Bible, they pray a lot, they do all of these good things. And a lot of their life, you would look at them and think they're really solid. But here's the reality. What would happen? What what happens? What happens? Because the reality is you don't always do it. What happens if in your morality, you fail? What happens is in your morality, if you are not capable of reading, let's say because you go blind for a few days, or you just can't read your Bible, or some reason you're not capable of doing your religious systems and duties and morality you feel really distant from God you feel as if you failed God it's because what happens is we end up trusting in these things it's almost as if we are justified by morality we are not justified by morality we are justified by grace Jesus saves us we have to be careful there are religious idols that we oftentimes hold on to and we look to and we think that somehow we'll be safe by those things. Here's another one. Gifts. What I mean by this is gifts is that we look at our lives and we're like, you know, I can do certain things. God has given me certain things. This is another form of like religious type of idols or idolatry. Um, again, I grew up in a system uh, where it really emphasizes great Bible preachers. I've met pastors before, okay? I've met pastors before that... That if, if they're no longer pastoring, one guy that I know, he's no longer pastoring. And I remember sitting down with him and he told me, he said, listen, when I was not able to pastor anymore, it was like my life was taken away from me. I says, why, why do you think that was? He said, I know exactly why that was. He said, because I made the ministry and my gifting an idol. And when it was taken away from me, my life was worthless. My identity was found in that which I worshipped. Yes, there's idols we've got to be careful of. Yes, there's religious idols we've got to watch out for. The second type of idols, I think we've got to be careful of are cultural idols, cultural idols. What I mean by it, these are sort of these governing principles that our culture, our society, sort of uh, deifies. Um, now what I want to say is this is that in reality, this concept of idols, we've got to understand is that there's a lot of good things that God has made that are good. Here's some examples of it. I mean, beauty is a great thing. You know, we, we love beauty. We love being able to see things that are beautiful. Everybody loves watching a beautiful sunset or going out in the middle of the night and looking up at the stars and seeing the beauty of the stars at night. But here's the deal. If you mythologize beauty, if you take something that is good and you mythologize it and you take something that is a good thing and you turn it into sort of an ultimate value in terms of beauty, you don't just have something that's good, but what you have now is Aphrodite. Here's another example. If you take intellect or reason, the ability to be able to think. It's really good. I mean, we live in a college community. We live in an educated community. Most of the people in San Luis Obispo and beyond are educated. Education is great. But what happens is if you take education, that's a good thing. God created us to be able to think and have good ability to understand. And if you take education and intellect and you take it from a good thing and you sort of, again, mythologize it, and turn it into sort of an ultimate value as a culture and as a society, you have basically Athena, which is what the Greek gods worship for the mind, for the intellect. Uh, one more example here. If you take something like money, which is good, again, Jesus never bags on money. In fact, Jesus uses money and even pays his own taxes. But he's like, look, if you take money and if you turn it into something that it shouldn't be, And you take this good thing that can actually be used to move forward God's kingdom, to push back darkness, to help other people that are oppressed and going through difficult times. If you take money that's good and you turn it into something that's an ultimate value, something that your heart is ultimately set on, you will ultimately find yourself, just like the ancient Greeks, worshipping Artemis, who is actually the goddess of fertility. But the reason why fertility sort of became associated with money is because fertility... Uh, even though it had to do with like, human fertility, it also became recognized as like, the goddess of the crops. Like If you were having a bad crop season, what you would do is you would pray to Artemis. You would give um, you, you know, sacrifices to Artemis so that your crops could grow. As soon as your crops begin to grow, now you're able to sell, sell those crops. You make money. So basically Artemis kind of went from being recognized as the goddess of fertility really to this goddess of money. You understand where I'm going with all this? We take good things and we turn them into ultimate things, then we have idols. We have things that will destroy us. What we're going to see basically next within cultural items, cultural idols, is we basically see, for example, family. Family is a good thing. God created the family, and God actually gives orders for men to be good husbands over the family. I got two daughters, Brianna and Brooke, uh, 13 and 10. I love my daughters. We spend a lot of time with each other, we hang out. I absolutely love family time. It is the highlight of my week. Whenever we get time to go hang out as a family, we always take time to go hang out as a family. My whole family loves it. Our our favorite thing is just to get together and go for walks, maybe down a Bob Jones trail, go for a walk on the beach. We just love to hang out as a family. So what I'm trying to say is this that if you take something that's good and you turn it into an ultimate thing, you have an idol. This is why oftentimes in some cultures, some civilizations, you have basically these ideas of honor killings. Say, for example, some child ends up getting pregnant before they get married, or a child ends up becoming a homosexual. Through honor killing, you go out and kill them. That's what happens in some cultures. Obviously, we're not going to necessarily go kill somebody in our culture, but here's what happens. If you worship family as ultimate thing, as an ultimate value, then you're the type of dad... Or the type of mom that if your kid fails, if he doesn't follow in your footsteps, if he doesn't pick up the family business after you, if he doesn't go to college, doesn't get a good job, you feel like an utter failure. It's because you made a family a good thing into an ultimate thing. And you feel like you're miserable. You feel like you've completely blown it. You've lost it. Here's another example. Cultural idols. Individualism. That's our, that's our culture, by the way. That's, this is where we live, individualism. I mean, San Luis Obispo might be a little bit more towards the family. I, I think our little neck of the woods, right? Central coast. People move here because they're like, I want to have kids. So we, we tend to be somewhere maybe in between individualism and family, maybe more so a little bit towards individualism. But individualism goes something like this. What I believe, what I think is ultimate. So if you cross my belief system, then I get really angry with you because you are attacking my idols, my gods, And when you attack my gods or my idols, they become violent. That's what happens. This is why, you know, people who feel crossed in their individualism, they get very, very violent, very angry. Here's another one. Politics. We we live in a culture that, you know, for some reason, we still have, have yet to break the chains the chains that cause us to think politics is going to save us. I mean, the reality is, is, you know, the Democrat Party, it's not going to save us. If if we live in such a way where it's like Democrats are going to, they're, they're going to save the day. They're going to help everything. They're going to get our culture back to a place, our climate back to a place where it can be healthy. The reality is, be careful to not make an idol out of the democratic culture. The funny thing is, I can think, probably some of you might be all like, yeah, we all know that's failure because it's the Republican Party we know which is the real right way, right? And honestly, I'd have to say to you, you're worshiping a false god too. It's not the Republican Party. They're just as corrupt. Just as corrupt. I mean, they're, I mean let me say this way. They're corrupt because they're made of human beings. If you place ultimate value on a human being, it will let you down it does not have the ability to fulfill and to bring promise some cultures they're like you know what we really need is more government and everybody to be equal it's like this idea of Marxism Marxism is going to save the day it will be the cultural savior it will bring us into heaven which is a peaceful existence with one another Marxism failed what I'm trying to say is this is that each of these things basically become variant forms of idols and idolatry which we put our hopes on trusting, hoping, thinking that it will bring us into some sort of heaven which they will always fail to deliver. The third type of idols is first of which is religious idolatry, second of which is cultural idolatry, third of which is I'm going to call it personal idolatry. And the first way in which I think among many is I'm just going to call it romantic love. This idea, this drive that says my way in which I find some sense of identity, in which my identity is actually valuable or valued, is in some sort of romantic relationship. The reality is is that somehow some people are driven with this thought process that says, I find my identity, I find wholeness, I find life by being made much of by somebody else. This is why sometimes women, especially women that may not have had a really great relationship with their daddy growing up, and as they get older... Because they are constantly under this feeling of never being close to a man. Or they don't understand what it's like to have a right relationship with their daddy. They kind of grow up and they begin to realize, I don't know where my identity lies. Maybe it lies in some sort of person loving me. And they will be willing to give themselves to anybody at any cost. The reality is, is that whatever types of idols that we make, we are willing to pay any amount of time, energy, and money to worship it. We're willing to make really great sacrifices to get it. Do you understand this? This is why somebody, in fact, what happens is when we make these things our gods, our barriers, our boundaries sort of just become blurred with everything else. This is why sometimes women would be willing to do anything they can to get into a relationship with a guy. They'll have sex with any guy that they can think of. Not because they start out saying, I'm just going to have sex with a guy, but they get involved in a relationship. There's some sort of emotional thing that's going on there, and then somehow it ends up because that's the only thing that's on the dude's mind. And that's where they end up. And the reason why they end up there is because it starts out with the sense of like, I want to be loved. My identity is found in that. But what happens is when you worship the false gods, not only do they fail to deliver, but when you try to break free from them, they become very violent, and they will destroy you. They will destroy you. They will defile you, and they will destroy you. And this is why Jesus comes along as a good God, and he says, I want to break the chains of your idols. I want to set you free. I want you to find true life, not empty promises that come through idols. Okay? That's where he's going. What happens basically as we move on, I also see the idea of money. I mean money, when you think about this the almighty dollar, we call it, right? It's this idea that says, if I have it, I'll be happy. If I have enough of it, I can buy enough things that I want. I can do enough things in my life that I really want. that will actually somehow bring me joy or happiness. And it's this idea of pursuit for money. But the thing is, especially in big cities... The way that you make a lot of money is you have to make sacrifices. We even use that language, right? If you're a guy and you're trying to make a lot of money, you'll say even stuff like this, I got to make sacrifices. I got to sacrifice time with my family, time with my kids. So a guy will not have any problem making massive sacrifice. Literally, the fact of the matter is is in our current day culture. There are a lot of children being sacrificed on the altar just so that your daddy can make a lot of money. You you can't get there without it. So what's the solution? Do we just like pull out Christians out of business? No. But there has to be some way in which we can look at money as a good thing that can be obtained not by bad means and not by sacrificing things that are good, not by making it an ultimate value. Remember, money's good. And the only way that you can do that The only way that you can make money that's redeemed, that's actually good, that's functioning in a purpose in which the way God wants it to be, is through the gospel. It's by Jesus opening our eyes and allowing us to see that all of these things have their place. Most of the things that we call idols are not evil things, guys. Do you know that? Most of them. In fact, most of them are good things. But when we take good things and we move them into an ultimate thing, we have idolatry. And our idols will not, only not let us, not, will not only let us down, but our idols will become very violent and attack us and destroy us if we try to pull away from them. This is exactly why oftentimes we see this even in extreme cases. When somebody who's you know, involved in some sort of heavy duty type drugs, they can't get out of them. They try to get out of them and all of a sudden everything becomes very violent. They find themselves struggling with massive you know, withdrawals, it's because that idol is very angry. Paul talks about it this way. In fact, Paul will say something like this. He'll say, you know, idols really aren't real, but idols are powerful. So it's like, what are you talking about, Paul? Kind of double talk. Either idols aren't real, or they are, what is it? I think Paul's point is this. Idols really are not real. They don't exist. But there are principalities and powers and demonic forces behind idols that give them the weight Behind every ultimate thing that we give our hearts towards is a very powerful demonic force trying to keep us bound. And this is why Paul would write something like this in Colossians. If you want, you can turn to Colossians chapter 2 verse 8. And I promised you early from the beginning, we will get back to the Sermon on the Mount. We are about to land the jet there. So Colossians chapter 2 verse 8. I want to read this to you. Paul says this. See to it that no one takes you captive. He's going to talk about through vain deceit and stuff like that. But really, I just want to stop at that concept. Paul's basically saying, look, don't, don't get caught. Don't get brought into captivity. Don't become bound by anything. Why? Because Jesus set you free. But there's always the danger of being trapped again. Okay, do you understand that? This, this is Old Testament language straight out of the book of Exodus. Where the children of Israel were bound by Egypt. They were bound by Pharaoh. And they tried to get out. They couldn't get out. You know, some of you might feel like that. You can't get out. You're in bondage to your idol. You're like, what do I got to do? How do I get out of the bondage? The reality is, is you cannot get yourself out. You have to be delivered by Jesus. And it's the message that Paul brings and he says this in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive. Verse 9. For in him, the whole fullness of the deity dwells. It's Jesus. And you have been filled in him, who is the head over all ruler and rulers and authorities. And you who were dead in your trespasses. He says, God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set aside, nailing it to the cross, he disarmed the rulers in the authority and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Here's what Paul says: Two things. One, you were bound by these principalities and these powers and these demons that masqueraded themselves. The sex, these good relationships, drugs, lust for power, children, Intimacy? these little idols. He says, one, he he broke the powers of darkness. But secondly, he says, there was this list of offenses that we had. And Jesus nailed them to the, they were nailed to the cross. See, the reality is, is that for us to choose and prefer anything over God who is good is an offense to God. It's an offense. It's an offense to look at God and say, hear God saying, I'm I'm all glorious, I'm all powerful, and we're like, no, you're not. Chocolate cake is. Or he would be like, no, you're not. Masturbation is. No, you're not. Sex is. No, you're not, God. Money is. It's an offense. It's an offense that is so great that literally Jesus says, I gotta seek and save those who have not only offended me, and the Father, and the Spirit, because we're good, but I also am come to set them free, to break the bondage that has got them bound. That's what Paul says, Jesus has come to deliver us from. Back in the text, Jesus picks up these statements, and he says, listen, don't be anxious about your life. I mean, life's got a lot of stuff in it. Life can easily take you away. You can allow your heart to get taken up by all sorts of things. And Jesus says, listen, if you have your mind set on all these things and you are trying to find fulfillment in all of these things, you will find yourself constantly again and again coming back to a place where you feel like you need to protect them, you need to safeguard them, you need to keep it, and you'll become anxious. And Jesus says, by living like that, you will destroy your life. Says, I don't want you to live like that. There's three things I want to finish with this that he ends up with that Jesus really is trying to communicate. First of all, he wants us to know really that we are made for more than food and clothing. We are made for more than food and clothing. I know this seems kind of like obvious, but the reality is a lot of times we just don't think this, do we? Like, ah, I want more. I want more. I need more. And what happens is we find ourselves stuffing ourselves with more, and we ne- are never really satisfied. It never really brings us back to a place of satisfaction. So the question is, why? I love what C.S. Lewis had to say. So the next slide, I want you to take a look Lewis. C.S. Lewis says this. One of my favorite quotes from him. He says, if I find in myself a desire which no experiences in this world can ever satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, then that doesn't prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. And he goes on and he says, if that is so, I must take care on the one hand, never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings. So he's not suggesting go be like a monk and go just Failing all these things. Stop eating food. Stop enjoying clothing. So, what he's saying, he's saying, I, I got to be careful. I've got to put all these things into their proper perspective. I can't let these good things become ultimate things. So, he says, I got to put them in a per- proper perspective. Never to mistake them for the, some, for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country which I shall not find till after death. I must make it my main objective in life to press on to that other country and to help others to do the same. Jesus is almost saying the exact same thing as C.S. Lewis is probably referring to Jesus. Jesus would put it this way. Seek first God's kingdom and all of these things will be put into the proper place. So the first thing is that you need to understand that you were made for more than money, food, or clothing. The second thing is this, is that God values you. I think this is hinted at, obviously very clearly pointed out on one hand, but also hinted at later on, where Jesus will say, listen, consider the lilies of the field. You know, they don't really do a lot of sewing or building or anything like that, but they're beautiful. I mean, look at little flowers. People step on them. You don't even think about it, right? You just step on like a ni- nice little daisy. If you ever stop for a moment, it's like, look at the daisy before you stepped on it. Like, man, that thing's absolutely beautiful. And they come up in the trillions every single day. And he's say to Look at the birds. I mean, nobody ever pays any attention to a bird. You drive down the street and a bird comes in front of you, you're just like, try to get it. Like, that's points. Like, nobody thinks about a bird. Nobody's ever like, birds, I'm into birds. Nobody. Well, some people are. But the reality is, is that this point is, God cares about birds and he cares about flowers, which most people just count insignificant. How much more, how much more will your father actually care about you? And he has this little statement. We're almost done here. He says, which of you by worrying, being anxious, can actually add one single hour to his span of life? Some of your translations might say an hour to his span of life. Some of your translations might say add 18 inches to his stature. So there's a little bit of a discrepancy in the actual original language as to what this actually means. Either he's getting taller or he's adding more years to his age. Um, I think... Probably what's happening here, I, this is my thought, check it, yeah, I could be wrong, but here's what I think is happening. I think Jesus is touching into sort of a cultural metaphor, a cultural idiom, and the idea goes something like this. Those who are older, because this is sort of a patriarchal society, the older you get, the more respect you have, the greater the identity you have, the more well-liked you are, the more, more well-appreciated you are. So I think here's what he's saying, is the, by worrying, which of you by worrying can actually add even more years to his life? to become more... Respected to have greater identity. I think, I think the heart of what Jesus is driving at is that one of the main reasons why we oftentimes do the things that we do and the gods that we worship and pursue those things. Because somewhere in our heart is that's where we find value. That's where we find our identity. Our identity is wound up in the gods we pursue. And Jesus is saying, listen. Don't you know, don't you know that your father values you? Don't you know that? He loves you. He loves you. This is why I say if you view the Sermon on the Mount as an angry Jesus, throwing out pithy statements out of anger and rage, I think you miss the heart of God. I think Jesus is going around saying, listen, there's a lot of sheep that are running astray the heavenly father who loves him and he's pursuing them the way that he's pursuing them right now is through me and Jesus is coming saying don't you know your father values you he loves you the final thing Jesus gives to his listeners is this is seek first God's kingdom if, if you just seek first God's kingdom God will take care of all these other things make God the most important thing that you pursue in your life it's okay to make God the ultimate thing in your life. In fact, Jesus would say it is the right way to live. To make God and in his infinite grace and in his value and his glory ultimate will actually set to right every other aspect of your life. You will be a better daddy because you will now begin to recognize there is actually an order in your home where you will love your kids. You will actually love your spouse, husbands. You will love your wives. Why? Why? Because in the proper order, in the light of the glory of the gospel, you will recognize that you're living out a model. You're living out a model. You're not just doing this arbitrarily. It's not just a bunch of random things in which you said, hey, I do at one point. You are actually living out a model in which you represent Jesus. And your wife represents the church. The gospel changes our lives. Some of us here today, we need to respond to God by confessing our idols. Confessing those things that we've relied upon, trusted in, things that we've taken that are good things, and we've made them ultimate things. We need to confess those to God. Ask God for forgiveness. The rest of us, we need to just look to Jesus and worship Him. We're going to finish. Jonathan's going to come up and lead us in a couple songs of worship. I'm going to pray. We're going to respond to God. We're going to respond by singing to Him. We sing to Him because we love Him. Uh, we're going to respond to God by giving our tithes and our offerings. If you're one of our guests here, please don't feel any obligation to give. If you call us your church, give joyfully. If you don't call us your church, you still want to give, give joyfully. Same thing. And uh, I'm going to pray right now. We'll sing, give, and then uh, we'll dismiss you guys after we're done here. So let's, let's do this. Jesus, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for what you did for us. We thank you for setting us free, not only from our idolatry, but you also set us free from the offense that we had incurred because we loved other things more than you. God, we confess it to you. And that's really the root of all of our evil, root of all of our sin, root of all of our deviancy. God, we want to confess it to you. We want to set matters straight. We want to have a single mind, a single heart that seeks first your kingdom, your beauty, your glory. We want to be a church that lives like this. We want to be a church in this community of the Central Coast that lives like this because, Lord, ultimately at the end of the day, we want the Central Coast to see how great our God truly is. God has a, was described last week in our prayer meeting that you are a God that loves to show off because you've got the goods. You've got the goods. Father, you love to show off to your kids who look like you and act like you and reflect you. So Lord, I ask you that you would do that in our lives and through our lives. Help us to worship you now.